Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This week on Truth and Movies, Burton returns to the Disney Cinematic Universe with a big top fantasy Dumbo. A face only a mother could love. There's mayhem in Norway in the black metal music biopic Lords of Chaos. Lord, the lone wolf. And in Film Club, one of those rare films based on collectible trading cards, it's Mars Attacks. Isn't the universe big enough for both of us? All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, boils and ghouls. It's Michael Leader here. You know, two Tim Burton films, black metal. I'm calling it. This is Goth Week on Truth and Movies. I'm sitting across from the beautiful and mysterious and prodigiously talented digital editor who is affectionately known as Adam Woodward Scissorhands. Adam, welcome. Hi. What an, what an intro. And we have Fresh Blood on the podcast this week. Charles Bromesco, welcome all the way from the States. Very exciting to be here. So, Charles, your goth credentials are sealed because you wrote one of the close-up books for Little White Lies on... Vampire movies, yes, on vampire cinema. I was I was prepared for you to say my goth credentials are sealed because you somehow knew about my goth phase at age 13. Uh, but no, yeah, I, I carried that on with me into the recent book, which is a survey of vampire cinema really starting with Nosferatu right up to the present day to Twilight, and it's organized like a field guide of the fictitious species of vampires, mm-hmm. sort of um, each aesthetic and thematic tradition lumped into a, its own sort of species chapter. That's terrific. And you also write for Little White Lies and The Guardian, I've read you in as well. Little White Lies, Guardian, yeah. uh, New York Magazine, New York Times, sometimes okay. whoever will take me. Fantastic. And we need to talk about this goth face. Yes, this, no, eventually, we're going to circle back to that. Maybe off mic, but first of all, we need to crack on. We have important circus business to attend to with Dumbo. Here, director Tim Burton gives the 1941 Disney classic the remake treatment. This time, the big-eared baby elephant arrives as a travelling circus in 1919 and is left in the care of two kids and their war-scarred dad, played by Colin Farrell. Could Dumbo's magical gift of flight turn the circus's fortunes around? Owner Max Medici, played by Burton regular Di DeVito, is initially unenthusiastic about the new attraction. What is that? A face only a mother could love. Sir, many of us find you handsome. I was talking about the elephant. You have until tomorrow night to fix that. Me? Make those ears disappear. Don't look at me. Hi, baby Dumbo. Welcome to the circus. We're all family here, no matter how small. You'll believe a CGI elephant can fly. Adam, are we excited at this point about a new Tim Burton film? 
Well, before we came on, we were trying to work out what his last one was, and it's Miss mm-hmm. Peregrine's Falcon's children of something. <laughs> the weird, weird kids. Extraordinary so the, teenagers. Yes. Yeah. Home for Peculiar Children, yeah. I think it's called. Which is pretty forgettable, but very Burton-esque. Mm-hmm. And before that, he did Big Eyes, so he's mm-hmm. got Big Eyes to Big Ears with this. Uh-huh. Um, do you know what? I'm a massive fan of the original Disney right. animation. It's probably my favourite, the one I grew up watching the most. So I'm quite relieved that Tim Burton strayed quite far from it and it feels like this is very much his own thing. He's not really tried to remake the original. Mm-hmm. He's very much stepping out on his own here. We have Colin Farrell weirdly playing like his second war veteran amputee mm-hmm. of recent years. The film very much centres around him and his mm-hmm. relationship with his kids. It sets out a stall as sort of like a film about overcoming adversity and specifically physical disability. Kind mm. of abandons that a little bit. It's also sort of about growing up and following your dreams and believing you can achieve anything. It's just a little bit corny, I think, on that front as well. Mm. And yeah, just oddly sort of seems detached from the actual story of Dumbo himself. Mm-hmm. And it is one of those expanded remakes that Disney are going through right now. The original Dumbo film was 60 minutes long, maybe 60 minutes and change. Really? And now they've made it an hour longer on top of that, added a bunch of characters. They do tip the hat every now and then to the old film. Like There is a sequence where they refer to Pink Elephants on Parade, one of the scariest sequences from the original Dumbo cartoon, but, but not but, much is there. Well, is there's there? a, one fellow who comes up with champagne to ply with Dumbo with champagne, mm. and they say, no champagne for the baby <laughs> elephant. This is a PC children's movie. No, mm. no drunken mm. elephants here. But Charles, did this work for you then as a remake, reboot, mm, recycle? Not, not quite, I'm afraid. I... I suppose I do appreciate that Tim Burton knew better than to try to just do Dumbo again, but I do feel that um, what he decided to do instead was not quite worthy of the association. This script comes from the fellow who wrote the Transformers films, and I feel as if that shows uh, its ideas are kind of shallow and facile, where what I liked about the original Dumbo was that it is a strange, frightening movie Mm -hmm. for for children that is nonetheless like wondrous and uplifting, but... I remember when I was young, this was really my first taste of, I think, feeling fear in a movie. Mm. The you know, the pink elephant sequence, which here is like a nice whimsical, you know, they're the bubbles and they're the made out of bubbles. And so, yeah, I felt as if it sort of compromises on the spirit of the original. And even more depressing for me is that it feels kind of like a hollow echo of Tim Burton's earlier films. He's doing a cover of himself. It really does. He's in this phase now, and I will throw Danny Elfman in there with him, where you think about 25, 30 years ago, they would be making very absurd, surreal films. The joke would be that Danny Elfman would be creating quirky circus music, but for a Batman film, now he's making quirky circus music for a film set at a quirky circus, Mm -hmm. and Tim Burton would be filling Pee-wee's Big Adventure or Big Fish with these outsized, larger-than-life characters, and now we're just at a circus. There's nowhere for him to go now with that aesthetic. As a fan... From a very young age, I remember seeing Edward Scissorhands, Nightmare Before Christmas, and then the Batman films, very young, probably too young. We'll come to Mars Attacks. That was the first 12 I saw at the cinema, and I wasn't 12. I've grown up with Tim Burton, and he's just stuck now, it seems. Doesn't know what to say or what to do. Of course, there's these intimations that he always likes the freaks, the outsiders, and now in this film... Mm. They're literally circus freaks. <laughs> there's, there's no symbolic level there anymore. I yeah. don't want to live in a world where Tim Burton is taking cues from the greatest showman. Uh-huh. I don't want to live <laughs> in this world. I, um, you can even see it in the visuals. I remember what's interesting about his early pictures is he's doing all this strange stuff with German expressionism mm-hmm. influence and all these harsh shadows. And then when you see this new one, there's just a, a vague, ambient, urinary light slathered all over everything. 
Yes, it's almost like once um, once digital color correction comes in, everything is just so desaturated. Oh this is meant to be a big family movie, right? They're, they're hoping that this will do Alice in Wonderland numbers, like more than a billion dollars at the box sure, office. Yeah. The first forty minutes is a slog, as you say. You've got Dad coming back with that arm from the war. You've got a uh, very uh, awkward reunion with him and the kids. He just yeah. sort of looks at them and he's like, "Ah, yes, I remember you." <laughs> exactly. And the, the circus is in financial peril. The elephant's you know torn away from his mother. All this stuff is really dreary for the first act to the film and does it ever have that magical spark Adam? I think going back to Burton's well the rut he's in I guess mm-hmm. the creative rut he's in for better and worse he's very loyal to a lot of his frequent collaborators so it's nice to see people like Danny DeVito here mm. just doing Danny DeVito and that kind of working in this context but then you know you get further in and I think Michael Keaton's probably the weakest link in the cast Eva yeah. Green as well doesn't really bring that much but I think Burton's big problem is that he's never really found a screenwriting partner who mm-hmm. can actually elevate some of his images and some of his ideas you know a lot of the stuff as we, as we said is being recycled from like earlier films of his own and, and you know throughout Hollywood history and it, it is like it's interesting you said The Greatest Showman because I think in Burton's mind he's doing like Todd Browning's Freaks and yeah. actually it's just yeah. The Greatest Showman <laughs> I guess the question that I'm wrestling with is how much creative control has been wrested from him by the Disney machine. Is is mm-hmm. this something that he has allowed himself to be subsumed by, or is this something that he's um, sort of trying to work within uh, subversively? What's most curious about the film to me is that not even a week after the Disney-Fox merger, we're getting a Disney film that is about the evils of corporate mergers. It's yeah. about a decent mom-and-pop circus that is gobbled up by a large uh, corporate circus and then, you know, summarily hit with layoffs. And mm-hmm. uh, they're nearly torpedoed, which is sort of the Disney MO. I feel as if maybe they're rubbing our faces in it or, or either unaware. And so this is why I'm unsure. Is this Burton's comment on having been, you know, conscripted into the Disney ranks? Or is this just something he's not aware of. I mean, he's a satirical guy. I like to think the best, but I'm not sure. I don't think he's big picture satirical, is he, really? This, mm-hmm. this might be a little bit too large an idea Right, for it's him. usually in the grace notes. But this is all concerning Michael Keaton's character, who is this art deco, almost a Walt Disney type. Absolutely. He creates, he creates a dreamland in yeah. place of Tomorrowland, and it mm-hmm. even has a little World of the Future exhibit. He's then this ambiguous figure looming in the in the margins. This feels like a very underdirected film. I don't think Michael Keaton really knew what his character, which way to tip the hat. He, he's playing it as a as a proper like mustachio twirling villain, mm-hmm. and really he's not that. The character is is just a kind of corporate. Yeah, as you say, he's this Disney figure. He's not necessarily evil. He's just obsessed with the bottom line. Yeah, exactly. Sure. And and that kind of makes sense. And I think they just play it up too much in this. And uh you know, the dreamland sequences towards the end, I would like to have actually explored that world a little bit mm-hmm. more and you know, there's so many little nods to the original Disneyland and uh and like you say Tomorrowland specifically. It doesn't really go there. Everything just kind of goes off up in a puff of smoke eventually and it just feels like a bit of a missed opportunity to explore and and for Burton to really show the worlds that he loves and wants to create and wants to immerse you in mm-hmm. feels like he's sort of relinquished a bit of control over over that and, mm-hmm. and it kind of teases you or almost like dips a toe in that water and mm-hmm. then just sort of pulls you away straight away. When you mention that he has his cast of actors he likes to, to call back, this feels like he's almost scraping the barrel. This is very much now deep into his post-Johnny Depp, post-Helena Bonham Carter era. Well, it's Eva Green is in the Helena Bonham Carter role. It seems yeah. as if she has eaten her body and now wears her skin like mm-hmm. a praying mantis. Um, 
there Danny DeVito I think is really the strongest presence in the film mm-hmm. he's having the time of his life up there he's he's not just cashing the check which is a little bit how I was feeling about Michael Keaton mm-hmm. he seems like he would rather be at home maybe reading the newspaper but Danny DeVito he's enjoying you know the cute little wordplay what did they say make those ears disappear mm-hmm. um, he gets to do all sorts of shtick with a CGI monkey I believe oh really are there any real animals at all in this film do we know I was trying to look out for some and any animal that is doing something anything that needs to have some direction is mm-hmm. CGI. So CGI Dumbo there's the small mice okay. definitely the monkey is CGI sure. it's almost the great tragedy of Tim Burton's career that he discovered CGI I think we'll come to this with Mars Attacks which is a key film fulcrum point in his career yeah. but wouldn't it have been amazing if he would have done this as almost a traditional animation with live action or with some sort of stop motion or whatever. My opinion is that if you're going to make a movie about elephants, you've got to have some elephants. <laughs> That's my philosophy. I've always believed this. Mm-hmm. I've said this, you know, time and time again. <laughs> How do we feel around the table about these Disney big-budget live-action remakes. So this is the first of three we're getting this year. We're getting Aladdin and The Lion King, and then Mulan beyond that is also getting the remake treatment. I'm fine with them in principle because there's a generation now of younger viewers who probably would not sit down and watch a 2D hand-drawn cell animation. I don't agree with that. Do you not think? I have lots of friends with younger siblings. I have friends with kids. Kids love cartoons. They have always loved cartoons. But they're not grown up necessarily watching those and consuming those as, as maybe our generation and other generations would have. And I think... It makes sense that Disney is cashing in its own IP to actually bring the same stories to a new generation. And in 20 years, they'll probably remake them as like 2D animations again. Like it will just or keep VR going in cycle. Yeah, exactly. Whatever the next thing is. Um, it's just that they haven't necessarily done this before. I think it works if there's someone like Guy Ritchie doing Aladdin. It makes no sense to me. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But John Favreau doing The Jungle Book and now Lion King, Lion well. King yeah. makes sense. I think this on paper was a good fit. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Burton's ambition and, and kind of what Disney wanted from it maybe didn't quite align. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We must be coming to the end of this phase for Disney because they're just running out of these classic films. So we've got now. coming down the pike, Mulan yeah. is happening. That's going to be... They had said at one point that they wanted to adapt the Night on Bald Mountain sequence from Fantasia okay. into a feature, which uh, makes feature. me quake in my boots. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But beyond I'm, that, they, you can't imagine them doing a Hercules or a Pocahontas or a Pinocchio. These are films that are already either very outdated by now or mm-hmm. in the public sphere been remade over many That's times. That's kind of the problem with Dumbo, I think, is that, I mean, there's so much of it which is quite dated and is quite specific to that period. Not only in, like, the animation there's techniques. There's no but, racist crows in this well, one. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, the original's literally got a character called Jim Crow in it. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. okay, it's easy to, like, go back and, and just kind of scratch that out and say right we can leave that that cuts out sort of 20 minutes but then they seem to find it else from somewhere and like you say they've just added so many unnecessary characters in this and there's so many weird decisions as well little kind of cameos as a it's always sunny in philadelphia cameo which which, yeah which i just thought the woman who plays max mom oh i didn't even know is in this for like the briefest moment but it's like why would you cast her Knowing that she's, you know, playing alongside Danny DeVito normally, it's like a weird little nod to fans. The strangest genuflection to real life beyond the film is that the announcer, whenever we are about to see Dumbo do his act, he yells, "Let's get ready for Dumbo!" And I'm like, "Hmm, I wonder how many parents actually laugh at that uh-huh. instead of just like feeling faintly befuddled." But that's the thing is, so that's that's actually the guy Michael Buffer who is the famous like boxing ring announcer right. in that role and it's like why would you cast him like, who is that for as you say is, is it a, a 
joke for parents or kids aren't going to get that. This is, I think Tim Burton needs this to get through these shoots. He needs to do a little something to amuse himself while he's, uh, you know, supplicating before the great Disney machine. That was his one demand in the contracts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, let's put some scores on Dumbo in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. Adam, I'll come to you first. I'd probably go three, four, anticipation. <laughs> and that's more based on Burton's recent track record than Disney's live action remakes. Because mm-hmm. actually, I really enjoyed The Jungle Book. I think. By the looks of it, Aladdin could be quite fun. Mm-hmm. Lion King looks pretty good as well. I'd say a two for enjoyment and a two for in retrospect as well. Mm-hmm. Charles? I'd say um, probably a two in anticipation. I have been sort of uh, burnt out on Burton as of, as of late, and I have never been much of a fan of these remake exploitation films. Mm-hmm. But enjoyment, I'd say maybe three. I, I had okay. a pretty good time with Sandy DeVito, and it was only really in retrospect once I started to think about it that it sunk to a one. The subtext of this film is just so bizarre and inexplicable. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'd, I'd say for th- a three-two-two for me, oh, I still want Tim Burton to come back and make something amazing. But... I don't think he's beyond that. I think mm-hmm. that... You know, how old is he now? He's not in his 70s. He's 60s. He must be in his 60s. Yeah. Sure, yeah. I think that one day, you know, he's going to make a goodly amount of money. He will make a satisfactory amount of money, and then he's going to go back to basics and make something like The Forbidden Zone or something. Oh, that would be incredible. I would love that. Let's see if they, he eventually does that. Tim Burton, if you're listening. <laughs> Give us a call. So that was Dumbo in cinemas this week. Up next, we're going to talk about Lords of Chaos. We're off to Norway for a dark and violent exploration of the black metal music scene in the early 1990s, specifically focusing on the band Mayhem and their part in the genre's rise to international infamy. Rory Culkin stars as our narrator, the ill-fated leader of the scene, Euronymous. Here I am, an average teenager, you may think. But you couldn't be more wrong. I am the founder of Mayhem, the most infamous black metal band in the world. We are the lords of chaos. Grace suck. Life was easy back then. It was all about having fun, drinking beer, playing hard and loud music. And then everything changed. Varg, the lone wolf. I hereby appoint you bass player of mayhem. We have to take this to the next level. You said it yourself. We should burn them all down. So, Charles, you mentioned your goth phase. Did that stretch to metal? Only tangentially, actually. One of my very closest friends from back in grade school was in a metal band. Mm-hmm. And so I would go to his shows, but I was far and away the least hardcore person there. Mm-hmm. I, my, my goal was mostly to not get jostled. But um, <laughs> I, I did go through you know, the obligatory American Nine Inch Nails phase, and then, uh-huh. which segued very smoothly into the Cure phase. And so, yeah, okay. center-parted hair, very baggy black jeans... Good times. I grew up with at least a, a passing interest in, in metal, intensifying at various stages of my adolescence and young adulthood, reading Kerrang! and Metal Hammer and so mm-hmm. on. So this story was very much in my consciousness with my friends. It was almost an urban legend we were obsessed with wow. in the late 90s, early 2000s. But I don't know how familiar this is to the broader public. This is something that I only learned about upon hearing about this film. I, I think I was aware of the band Mayhem, but I did not know of their stature within the black metal scene, and especially not the uh, really the 
intersect drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is such a fascinating take on uh, the <clears throat> film. Adam, you're approaching this as, I don't know, uh, are you a part of the metal militia or a, a neophyte? No, I mean, yeah, beyond Sabbath, I'm not really like uh, big on metal and uh, certainly not black metal. But I did actually know a little bit about this story. I think I'd seen something on, on TV years ago, like a documentary. And or, I think Vice made a documentary about it as well. Right. Um, and there, there was a film from a few years back, a documentary looking at kind of Finnish black metal, mm-hmm. I think. So, yeah, somewhat familiar with the story. Interested to see kind of the approach they would take. And mm-hmm. reading a little bit about it beforehand, the director, Jonas Ackland, who's he's a little bit of a kind of hacky director, I think, mm-hmm. had a background as a rehearsal drummer for a black metal band back mm-hmm. in the day. And the story is that he quit the scene because he, he thought it was getting kind of too commercial and, mm-hmm. and too mainstream. And uh, it, it very much feels like he is having a bit of a dig at this scene now. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense that the film doesn't really take them that seriously. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as seriously as they take themselves. Mm-hmm. How seriously they take themselves is really the question of the film. Mm. The tensions between these two main characters, Euronymous and his ally-turned-sort-of-competitor, whose name is Varg, they're both doing the same thing of all the death and destruction, but the difference is how to the extent to which you really believe it. Euronymous mm-hmm. understands that it's an act, it's uh, it gets people excited and it feels good and it's it's very exciting, but Varg is um he's fully subscribing to this. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose, yeah, this, this is where we should talk about the true story here, mm-hmm. is that there was this band Mayhem, part of this scene in Norway, and they would talk about this sort of strange mixture of neo-paganism and Satanism, or certainly like anti-establishment speaking, and they particularly directed at the Christian majority of their yeah. country, and it they would say, oh, someone should go and burn some churches, and people did go and blow up churches as almost marketing stunts for their albums, but then it would become almost a way of life, almost a, a lifestyle, and then some of them take it even further into murders. And there is this also this character. The film does almost turn at one point because you have Mayhem's earlier career with this other vocalist who is called dead which was very dark humor there really in, in retrospect is that, that that's factual his name was, was he was named as dead um these are all nicknames that they gave themselves stage right? names that they gave themselves well, I think in time everyone nicknaming themselves dead will eventually have to become ironic at some point exactly well he's a, a swedish singer who commits suicide in their in their sort of rundown flat and that becomes part of the scene's mythology it becomes part of mm-hmm. it becomes a cover shot for a bootleg for mayhem and they, they talk about having shards of his skull made into necklaces that all the band members wear and but how much of it is part of the mythology how much of it is actually Mm -hmm. an ethos is the question of the film and Jonas Ackerland I think is he's this is one of those interesting films. We talked about Fighting My Family a couple of weeks back where it's about wrestling, and you think, this is a film about wrestling, let's get some wrestling fans in to watch it. This is a film about black metal, let's get some black metal fans in to watch it. They're probably the worst audience to see this film because it's really poking at some of the foundation myths of this scene but and saying maybe the founders were idiots. A lot of the metal people I know, the metalheads that I've had the privilege of knowing in my life, are generally convivial, mm-hmm. kindly, friendly people, much like Euronymous. You know, mm-hmm. he's like a little standoffish to Varg at first just because, you know, he has to keep his stature as the commander of the scene. But um, they all just like having fun with each other. They like hanging out. He gets a girlfriend who's played by Sky Ferreira and they have a very warm, tender relationship which is contrasted with the way that Varg treats women, which is uh, 
pretty transactional. And Varg is played by Emery Cohen, who we may recognise from Brooklyn and A Place Beyond the Pines. He's a bit heavier set in this film, but he plays Varg, who originally turns up and is is, is he chastised for a certain patch that he's wearing on his denim he jacket? He has a scorpion's patch. Scorpions is lame, unlike uh, metal, which is cool. <laughs> <laughs> and that's almost seen as uh, as the trauma that makes him want to be more metal or, or more black metal mm. than everyone else. And he takes it too far. I think this film takes on, for music films in particular, I prefer mu- music films that almost double as music criticism, especially Todd Haynes' films like I'm Not There Absolutely, and Velvet yeah. Goldmine. I think this leaves behind at times what actually happened and looks at particularly young men in the communities that they can gather around themselves and how the machismo may take things too far. I fully agree, yeah. The evolution of a scene really being the subject of of the film, this idea that they could gather collaborators and create something original that would have a global influence mm-hmm. uh, right in their own home. Adam, so let's talk about how this actually plays as a film, really. It's a mixture of genres. It's <clears throat> Is it funny, uh, horrifying at times? I think my, my issue with the film is that it gets very quickly and establishes very quickly the fact that this was a kind of game for some of these guys. Mm-hmm. And some of them were, were very clear in what they were doing in terms of the you know the button pushing. Others maybe just a bit misguided. I, I wouldn't say that it considers them to be idiots, but they're certainly young and reckless and, yeah, as I say, just probably a bit misguided in, in their actions. But the film is is kind of pitched as a... It's more a comedy, I think, than anything else. And there are some really shockingly violent scenes, not mm. to sort of clutch my pearls or anything, but there, there are some moments in this where the violence is, is presented in such a glib and matter-of-fact way I um I ended up researching. I had to Google how many times the you know stabbing was because we see every single time that he does the stabbing. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that there had to be a very specific report because we see it's an incredibly gratuitously violent finale. And you may watch the trailer and think that it's all you know, good times and maybe it's a true crime film, but it has specifically one scene that is one of the most violent and shockingly mm-hmm. violent scenes I've seen in, in, in memory. And, and I'm I quite like horror films, so it's not the time squeamish and this is a film that when it played at Fright Fest in Glasgow people had to be escorted out they were very moved by the film I, in that the way the press screening I was actually in a guy who I didn't recognise who I think was possibly a music journalist actually kind of got up was visibly upset during this one particular scene and, and had to be escorted out and uh, you know it was, it was kind of upsetting actually to see that and I would, I would just say anyone who has known anyone who has committed suicide or had suicidal kind of tendencies self-harm and self-harm yeah, yeah I mean mm-hmm. it, it should come with a bit of a kind of warning or consider this that warning because it's a very visceral very uh, as I say quite glibly played out scene well you think glib I think it's very pointed I think that that is showing just how it's demystifying demythologizing these acts this whole story very quickly due in part to some articles in the British music press and so on and then documentaries and then kind of oral history books that came out very quickly afterwards became part of mythology and because of Norway even though Norway is actually a very close geographical neighbour to the UK feels almost like Narnia or something where these crazy like outsized figures called Varg and Euronymous and dead and uh, etc killed somebody and now they're in prison for five to ten years it's I mean, that would have been true of the time, but mm-hmm. perhaps now with the internet, we have a little bit mm-hmm. um, more information on these guys in this scene, and it, I think you can kind of make your own mind up about that. The film at the end ultimately kind of says, well, this stuff happened, and uh, you know, this is part of why we, you know, our legacy and, and our mythology, and it, it ends on this kind of strange note of 
would you would you go back and do it all again kind of thing and it's kind of a shrugging yeah why not you know mm. and that attitude to me it didn't quite sit right with me interesting I think Ackerlinda, if you see his other films, you see that he has he does not always fully reckon with the moral consequences of the things he does. I saw a picture he did recently called Polar, uh-huh. which really, I think first five minutes, we get to watch a dog get murdered, okay. uh, like a really adorable dog, oh, okay. accidentally. I think the relationship between Ackerlinda and the way he chooses to portray Euronymous is very curious, because he definitely wants Euronymous to be a likable, sympathetic character. But that involves sort of glossing over a lot of the more questionable things he does. After mm. um, his friend dead commits suicide, before alerting the authorities, he decides to pose his corpse to look a little more gnarly and take a photo of it, which I think really should be the ball game right there. This is how we know that he is on an ego trip that sort of plays out later in the film, but never to the extent that we actually lose sympathy for him, which feels like Ackerland kind of losing sight of what the story is uh, to me. And then my other complaint along those lines would be that the parallel tracks that Varg and Euronymous are on, and they're on this collision course, it's clear from like the earliest moments what's going to happen between them. It's the same thing mm-hmm. from um, Milk and Dan White. You know, the second they meet, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, no, this is the guy. <laughs> I think on the note of the Rory Culkin um, character, Euronymous, it's interesting that the Sky Ferreira girlfriend character is fictional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think is quite a key thing because, as you say, it further kind of sympathises and humanises him. And she really is not explored particularly as a character. No. She's uh, a, a photographer. hot photographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and she sort of, you know, ingratiates herself with these with this scene and these guys. And then, you know, initially seems quite mysterious and that she's not mm-hmm. that interested. And then ultimately tries to kind of domesticate him a little bit. Well, he, he has a haircut, doesn't he? Yeah. At one point, which is seen as like symbolic. Samson, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's supposed to be this sort of romantic scene. And yeah, like you say, like like, like, like Samson, but mm-hmm. didn't really work for me. I kind of, again, thought that was like a little bit cynical almost to, to mm-hmm. include to include that character. And then also, I mean, the, the frankness with which their sex is depicted is kind of telling as well. Mm-hmm. Well, let's put some scores on this uh, for Lords of Chaos. Charles, uh, the three scores, please. Um, having seen Ackerland's past films, I was at about a two or three of anticipation, probably two, closer to that. However, I was uh, very impressed. I thought it was really intelligent about metal, intelligent about the way musical scenes organize themselves and permutate. I thought the the performance scenes are just, those rip, those are great. Um, enjoyment, I would say four. And then in retrospect, probably three, because mm. I think the characterization starts to break up once you think too hard about it. Adam. I'd, I'd say three, four, anticipation, and probably enjoyment as well. I was just not really sure where I was with this film for a long time. And ultimately, I'm not sure what the point is. It, it left me with this shrugging, like, that happened, you know. I'm not sure Ackerland is intelligent enough to actually be offering a kind of comment, whether it's, like, moral or anything else, on not just the scene and the kind of history, but, like, these guys' actions. So, yeah, I'd say probably a two in retrospect. Oh, I, I couldn't disagree with you more, Adam. I, this is a three, four, four for me, and I, I wrote a review in the magazine, maybe on the website. By the time this episode goes out, this film really lodged itself in my brain when I saw it back in Berlin last year in the market. It really is shocking, but also really takes to task so many of the mythologizing aspects of particularly metal music, but I think generally about music scenes and how we can take real trauma, real acts of violence and somehow enshrine them into modern myths. And I think he does that in a way that is very quite bracing. I would recommend it, although be warned about some key scenes. Lords of Chaos there, something to chew on. For Film Club, up next, we're back to Tim Burton for Mars Attacks. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yes, we're going back to Burton for Film Club this week, focusing on his 1996 alien invasion comedy Mars Attacks. To some, this is one of Burton's last great films, capping off a hot streak that included Batman, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands and Ed Wood. However, on initial release, Mars Attacks was something of a bomb, despite the best efforts of a stacked all-star cast, including Jack Nicholson in not one, but two roles, one being the President of the United States. Why are you doing this? Why? Isn't the universe big enough for both of us? <laughs> what is wrong with you people? We could work together. Why be enemies? Because we're different? Is that why? Think of the things that we could do. Think how strong we would be. Earth and Mars together. I love that scene. But let's see what the listeners think, Adam. Yeah, Tom Atkinson tweets and say top three Burton movies easily. And from Johnny Barrow, it's the best film ever made. That features Sarah Jessica Parker's head surgically bonded to a dog. It's a niche genre. <laughs> so we have Josh Slater-Williams on Twitter who tweeted saying, Time has been kind to it, that despite how well the stop-motion-like stylization of the CG effects here hold up, introducing Tim Burton's CGI accidentally triggered a key factor in his artistic downfall. Also, as a comedic portrait of a government trying to do the same stupid things over and over again in the face of chaos, with only minor alterations to their plans, it feels weirdly timely. <laughs> Josh, what are you getting at? Everything's fine. <laughs> So, Mars Attacks, guys. As I said before, this was the first 12 I saw, even though I think I was 10. I loved it as a 10-year-old. 
Is this a rewatch for you? What do you think? Yeah, I, d- I didn't see it in the cinema, but I remember going out and buying a VHS copy, which came with like a T-shirt. Uh, which just had like the film's title as, as the kind of central logo of the t-shirt and was way too big for me, it was like a double XL but I wore it quite a lot, quite proudly as well I think at that point I was getting more into kind of comic books and wasn't familiar with the trading card games I don't know if that's more of an American thing but mm-hmm. and probably had only seen a handful of Tim Burton films up to this point but very much enjoyed his aesthetic mm-hmm. and, and re- responded to it I mean, watching it today, it's very much a product of its time that the CGI in particular doesn't really hold up but it does feel like one of the more you know straightforward and enjoyable Tim Burton movies Mm. from that period like it's quite lean actually I was going to say economical but it's just there's no fat on it it just really goes from like A to B at like 90 miles an hour and very very fun Charles? With regard to the bad CGI, that almost works for me because yeah. I think that this is like the Ed Wood practical effects of CGI. Mm-hmm. Like it is as janky and um, clearly, you know, uh, labored over as his effects were. I, I love this film a lot. I had seen it for the first time last year, actually. I, I was just sort of a blind spot for Tim Burton that looked interesting, and I watched it, and I could not have been happier. But you, sir, you, you can sort of see this as his turning point where uh, he starts to give in to his worst habits and worst impulses. But and I love it so much. It, it almost feels like it's the uh, it's a mad, mad, mad world of mm-hmm. B-movies and that we've got all of these sort of independent plots that are taking place within this one uh, larger situation, which I think is a fun way to structure a movie. Cast, absolutely stacked. The humor really works for me, and it's really mean-spirited humor, but mm-hmm. in, in a way that agrees with me. It's not quite hateful, but it is, you know, really um, gleefully <laughs> cynical about humanity. You talk about stacked cast. It's something that, even going back and looking now, you have Jack Nicholson, Glenn Close, Annette Benning, Pierce Brosnan, straight after GoldenEye, Diane DeVito, Martin Short, Sarah Jessica Parker, Michael J. Fox, Rod Steiger, then some rising stars, Lucas Haas and Natalie Portman in very small roles, Pam Greer, just as she's coming back into Super young Jack Black. Jack Black was like a yeah. baby in that one. I think it's one of his first feature film roles. Really? And uh, he gets, I think, the first death, one of the first deaths in this film as uh, Billy Glenn Norris. And then surprisingly serviceable performer, Tom Jones as himself. Oh. Does a great job. Yeah, any film that ends with Tom Jones singing It's Not Unusual and practicing his falconry is okay with me. <laughs> you know, I think the, the very final shot of this film where he steps out and the falcon lands on his arm and he's singing, that's almost a Disney moment. Why wasn't that in, in Dumbo? Why wasn't he harnessing Hire that? Tom Jones. I thought he was particularly, yeah, he was great, um, considering he, he wasn't one of those singers in the 60s and 70s who tried acting before, right? Mm-hmm. I think this is one of his only so. film roles. When I look back on this film, it's... I remember at the time there was this sense that is it a comedy, is it meant to be trash, what is this? Watching it now, when especially we covered Deep Impact on Film Club a few weeks ago, the Mimi Leader film, it's such a good parody of the mid-90s disaster movie, alien invasion movie, whatever you want to call it. And part of that is this sense that you hear it in the clip, this almost ignorant optimism. Oh yeah. All the best sci-fi movies about alien invasions are about American exceptionalism. This Mm -hmm. is like I think, not directly, but definitely a precursor to Starship Troopers Mm -hmm. in that when aliens come, our first belief is that we will be able to defeat them. And then when that becomes clear that that's not the case, our next belief is that of course they'll want to be our friends, which is also not the case. (laughs) They treat us the way Americans treat other countries. Mm Mm-hmm. This also has so much of his visual animators flourishes in here. Mm -hmm. Um, Visual gags as 
Johnny says the the idea to that they would surgically implant Sarah Jessica Parker's head on on a dog, and then you'd have Pierce Brosnan's head just flying around with blood dripping, and also has the sequences which you see in Independence Day and all of those sort of Roland Emmerich type uh, mm. disaster movies of aliens going around the world and destroying key landmarks. Mm-hmm. There's a great one where they throw a bowling ball at the, the Easter Island heads and so on. I think my, my favourite sequence is, um, and actually my favourite performance in this is Martin Shaw as the like sleazy press secretary, yeah. mm-hmm. and the bit where he takes a, uh, an alien who's kind of dressed up but quite unconvincingly mm-hmm. as a woman into the is it the uh, the Kennedy room? Yeah. Again, there's so many layers of jokes working there, but yeah, just I love that sequence so much. He ends up getting his kind of finger bitten off. And, and that's that's Lisa Marie, who was uh, Tim Burton's partner at the time, mm. and was in all of his films up up to Sleepy Hollow, at least. You know, we, we talked about how he has his muses and his phases where he keeps casting the same people over and over. And of course, Jack Nicholson coming back after after Batman here. I really love the um, the design of the aliens themselves. I mm. think uh, we can see the ridges of the brain and everything. Thinking about this film, I kept asking myself why I love the aliens here and I hate the minions so much because I think functionally <laughs> oh. they're rather similar organisms. Yeah, yeah. they are, yeah. are little nattering people that just uh, yell. But I think the Martians, the little green men, mm-hmm. uh, as it were, have a little more devious sense of humor than the minions, who just mm. seem like overactive toddlers. They've got a lot. They've got more personality, I think. Oh, for sure. Yeah, but they're, 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 they're quite frightening looking. They're, yeah, mm-hmm. there's hatred in their eyes. You can see yeah, death. Yeah. But they're also quite cartoonish, and he has them like running around on their ship in little red silk <laughs> pants. Yeah, right. <laughs> doesn't really take the the whole premise of alien invasion too kind of seriously or literally what i was thinking is that the design that they don't really look all that intimidating at first is is what's genius about it when they show up they're like you know oh and then (laughs) they start exploding all of us i do love this film and but i wouldn't call it top three burton movies i wouldn't even call this really top tier what would we call top tier burton probably batman Edward. Edward, definitely. Edward Scissorhands as well. I think this is actually Mars Attacks. I wouldn't say it's a particularly good film. Mm-hmm. I, I really love it and it's a lot of fun, but I don't think it... Oh, I think it's great. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> it, it, it would crack my top five uh, uh-huh. after Batman, yeah. I, I've, well, personally for me, it's Batman Returns, Edward Scissorhands, maybe Sleepy Hollow coming in. That's one that mm-hmm. I think has aged very well. Around this, this time, Tim Burton was, you know, all eyes were on him in the, in the mid-90s onwards. And he was starting to become almost this trademark in himself. And people would be wearing their their stripy stockings and putting their hair up in all sorts of uh, Tim Burton-y shapes. But he was still finding within that something to say in a vision. And he would be riffing on the sorts of films he would love growing up, but putting his own stamp on that. Mars Attacks and Sleepy Hollow is where he, he does that. So I think, but I think Sleepy Hollow is a little bit better. Mm-hmm. It's where he goes an outright almost hammer horror film. Mm. Who's seen that one recently, Adam? I haven't seen it for a little while, but I remember being very creeped out by it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's probably one of Johnny Depp's better performances mm-hmm. of recent years. I mean, well, yeah. We talk about Gothwick, that's capital G Goth, that's Gothic. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. But yes, would you recommend Mars Tax? It sounds like Charles, you would. Highly, yeah, I love Mars Tax. You were wavering a little bit, Adam. No, no, it's, it's a lot of fun. It doesn't necessarily all hold up, but mm-hmm. it's very enjoyable, very kind of pacey. The cast is great. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it's also, I mean, something that I'm not the person to write about this, of course, but it's one of the only Tim Burton films to have people of colour in, right? Very he's, true. he's one of those incredibly white filmmakers. Pam Greer is out here battling the alien menace on our behalf. And uh, there's, this, there's the bit where Jim Brown, you know, rips off his, uh, his body armour, well, his, his work body armour, and he's there beating up the, the aliens. I think that's great. But interesting for him, a very 
white bread filmmaker oh, yeah. there. The strongest influence in the current day in Tim Burton on, on American culture in the States at least is that he has single-handedly kept Hot Topic existent <laughs> and, and profitable as, as an operation for years and years. Well, that's one thing that he can take to his grave. And that was Mars Attacks, rounding off our Tim Burton special episode, Goth Week is Over. Or is it? Next week we have Pet Cemetery, the remake of the Stephen King novel, The Sisters Brothers, Western starring Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley, and for Film Club, you know, because we're talking about Pet Cemetery, the new one, let's talk about Pet Cemetery 1989. Let's see how that stands up. Charles, thank you so much for joining me today. Please come back whenever you can. It's been an absolute pleasure. Are I can't wait f- to come back. Are you flying back tomorrow? Very early, yeah, yeah. Well, have a safe flight. Adam, a pleasure as always. Let us know what you think of Pet Cemetery via the usual channels at Truth and Movies on Twitter, Truth and Movies at TCOLondon.com via email, or at LDLies.com slash podcast. I've been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a Seven Digital production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.